There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France. Which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi. It's more popular than being French. See you in there. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. People yelled at each other online before Trump, but it took Trump for us to realize just how damaging online outrage can be to individuals, to relationships, to journalism, and to politics in general. But how damaging? And in what exact way? There is a science to be applied to these questions, and that's what Molly Crockett does. Molly is an assistant professor of psychology at Yale University and a distinguished research fellow at the Oxford Center for Neuroethics. She started looking into online outrage before Trump, and in a way, her work predicted Trump. Her studies found that online outrage tends to stay inside the echo chamber of people who already agree. She found that positive feedback loop we're now familiar with, where the echo chamber emboldens those who are in it. And it turns out, outrage isn't a thing that can be expressed and let go of. It's more like a drug. The more you get, the more you want it. And social media means you can get it 24-7. We talk about those findings and more with Yale psychologist Molly Crockett coming right up. Molly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to get kind of a general overview of what you study. Now, to me, it looks like there's a theme of moral outrage going throughout your work. Is that I it? mean, there is there is a theme of moral outrage <laughs> say, running throughout the world. I was going to say, when I say a theme of moral outrage running through your work, I don't mean that you are outraged. But <laughs> you may be. Well, I am. I am all the time, okay. constantly. Um, there is a you know running joke in psychology that we do me search. <laughs> we study the things that we have experience with in our own life. Yeah. So my my research program is broadly on moral psychology. I'm really fascinated by how human beings judge right from wrong, how we make moral decisions, how we conceive of ourselves as moral beings, how we apply these judgments maybe differentially to ourselves versus other people, to our in-group versus our out-group, and how these processes might be changing over time, in particular with the advent of new technologies like social media. And um, of course, outrage has been uh, a recent (laughs) theme. And this particular line of work uh, started uh, in the aftermath of the 2016 elections. Although I guess you can trace the line back much further because my PhD dissertation work was on the neurobiology of moralistic punishment. So I was really interested in how 
brain processes guide our decisions to punish other people who we think have treated us unfairly, for example. And that work identified the engagement of reward systems in the brain in decisions to punish others. And so that was the lens that I was looking at my own behavior and particularly my social media behavior after the 2016 election. Well, that's fascinating because I was going to ask you how you got interested in this. I honestly didn't expect 2016 to be the answer. I'm especially interested that you were able to kind of see yourself, like look at your research and and, and try to mirror, you know, what, what your experience. And and let's not gloss over what, what you apparently found out, which is that our brain rewards us for punishing other people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is not my own discovery. This is something that's been um, but you went in. shown multiple times in lots of different ways uh, in in the literature since at least the, the early 2000s. Some of the first brain imaging studies of punishment were, were published. So my work was building on that. And, and the newer stuff is is sort of taking some of those ideas and applying them to the context of social media interaction. Can we talk a little bit about that basic idea though? Like it, yeah. it, 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 it's a, there's a pleasurable, it's a pleasure response, a neurobiological pleasure mm-hmm. response. Mm-hmm. Like what kinds of punishment, you know, induce that? Well, um, I mean, I, I don't, I it's don't not know like literally I'm... sadomasochism, right? Like it's not. <laughs> no. So, I mean, you know, and the, the idea that revenge is sweet has been around mm-hmm. for a long time. Right. So in, in many, in, in many cases, you know, this is a good example of, of, you know, we didn't need a brain scan to tell us this, right. You know, I mean, I have, you know, I trained in neuroscience and, and a lot of my research is neuroscience. Um, but you know, let's, let's, let's be clear that like, the, that research is not necessarily telling us anything new about the psychology, but it is kind of reinforcing this really old idea that um, we're really motivated to, to punish people who we see have transgressed moral norms. And what's really remarkable about punishment in humans in particular is that we're willing to go to great lengths and to incur uh, you know, personal costs not just to punish people who've harmed us directly, um, but also to punish people who have transgressed more broadly, or even, you know, even who have harmed total strangers, you know, halfway across the world that we're never going to see or meet again. And I think there's something really kind of beautiful about that, actually. I mean, the fact that we can feel anger and indignation on behalf of strangers, like, that's that's really amazing and and something that that is is not seen in our primate relatives um, to the extent that that it is in humans. And there's some debates as to whether you know chimpanzees or other non-human primate species will engage in in punishment on behalf of others. Um, but it's it's clear that this behavior in humans is is far more extensive than any other species. And, and what you just said is a good reminder. For, to a bleeding heart like me, that punishment <laughs> isn't necessarily bad. That when we are morally outraged um, and we want consequences, I always like that term better than punishment. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. we would we desire consequences on the behalf of society or the behalf of the injured party. You know, that's also sometimes known as justice. Yes, absolutely. Although there's some work that we've done in my lab that 
pinpoints how much of our punishment behavior is concerned with consequences, teaching a lesson versus just making the other person suffer, right? And this is this is a, a, a line of work we've done, um, basically looking at the behavioral manifestation of these two types of punishment that have been identified in philosophy, retribu retributive punishment and sort of consequentialist punishment. And what we see in adults, as well as in children, uh, as young as four or five years old, that both motives are present. So people are willing to punish someone who behaves unfairly, even if that person will never even know that they've been punished. So there's no way that they could learn a lesson or improve their behavior in the future. It's the sort of lab experiment equivalent of like a, a waiter spitting in a rude customer's food. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's no norm enforcement happening with this kind of secret punishment. And we see that in adults and in children. But crucially, people are even more willing to punish when it can teach a lesson, both mm -hmm. adults and children. So we do have this taste for punishment that's going to do some good mm -hmm. for the broader society. So let's go back to your interest in moral outrage and, and your own use of social media and how that kind of got you to where what you're studying today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what happened? What did, did you see yourself yeah. engaging in, in behavior that you thought, oh, oh I yeah. should study this? Was yeah. it behavior so, that you didn't like? I have a flashbulb memory. Um, this was when I was still at Oxford. I was living in Jesus College uh, in a, a little turret. And uh, I mean, you know, just like many, many people, you know, the outcome of the election was devastating. I was also, you know, living in UK at the time. So this was coming on the heels of Brexit. And I had, I had not been very political in my social media posting behavior um, up until that point. But after all of that happened, I sort of started sharing more articles and spending more time on social media. And I, I vividly remember one morning um, kind of waking up, you know, making myself a tea, curling up on my couch with my phone in hand and just sort of scrolling through and the next thing I knew, it was almost noon. <laughs> and I had been sort of sucked in this feedback loop of expressing outrage, getting a lot of positive social feedback for that. You know, the newsfeed is, of course, showing me more articles that it thinks I'm going to like and share. And I realized that I had just not been very intentional in the way that I was spending my time. And it felt like it was controlling me rather than the other way around. And because the lab I had done my PhD in and a lot of the, the work that I had been doing in the years prior had been around understanding the neuroscience and psychology of habit-based decision-making and how our behavior over time, if it gets reinforced, can, come, can go from being very intentional and goal-directed to being sort of knee-jerk, reflexive, habitual, and not kind of consciously intended. Um, and so I just had this sort of aha moment and, and thought, oh, I wonder if I'm just habitually sharing and expressing and 
this is actually something we might be able to study in the lab. And the implications are, I think, really important because we like to think of our moral discourse as something that is really, really central to our identities. You know, the most important conversations that we can be having that will shape the future of democracy. And isn't it really important if those conversations are coming from an intentional and conscious and goal-directed place? And would it be troubling if a large part of these interactions were actually behaviors shaped by the algorithms, which, oh, by the way, are controlled by interests that are very powerful, that have a very particular agenda. You know what makes me angry online? Terrible products. Luckily, the sponsors of this show have awesome products, and you're about to hear about some of them. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Wild Alaskan Company. I basically never buy meat or fish at the store because I can't predict the days I'll have the energy to actually cook and not have a sandwich or cereal for dinner. Packages of frozen salmon from Wild Alaskan Company mean that I have a great option, an easy option for every night. Wild Alaskan Company delivers high-quality, sustainably sourced, wild-caught seafood right to your door. Choose from salmon, whitefish, or a combination, and every month there are different specials to explore. Each shipment contains premium wild-caught, individually-wrapped portions of delicious seafood that's ready to prepare and easy to cook. Wild Alaskan Company seafood is how nature intended it to be. Always wild, never farmed or modified, and it contains no antibiotics. You can adjust, pause, or cancel your membership anytime, and they offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. Get your nutrition from nature with Wild Alaskan Company. And right now, you can get $15 off your first box of premium seafood when you visit wildalaskancompany.com slash friends. That's wildalaskancompany.com slash friends for $15 off your first box. wildalaskancompany.com slash friends. Make sure to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Best Fiends. Are you looking forward to normal? I feel kind of weird about it. I feel like neither my body or my brain are up to normal, whatever that is. One way to get your brain engaged again is to stop passively streaming and download and play Best Fiends. Maybe, like me, you're already playing it, but have you noticed the levels go on and on? There are new characters every time. And what I love the levels get harder at just the right pace. You won't get frustrated and you won't get bored. It's one of those games that makes 30 minutes feel like 30 seconds, and it's free. With thousands of fun puzzles to solve, there's something new every day. With Best Fiends, the adorable collection of characters just keeps coming, and Best Fiends releases new challenges, new characters, and themes all the time just to keep you on your toes. But the really fun part of Best Fiends is how you strategically team up with each character based on their special abilities to gain extra points and items to level up your fiends. Download the five-star rated puzzle app today, Best Fiends, on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. 
It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday, and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion, and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling, and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. So you have a light bulb moment that has to do with your own behavior. Um, and, and I think, yes, a legitimate concern. We want to believe that our morality is based in our intelligence, or at least our spirit, right? And not just uh, something that is the mental equivalent of, you know, funny bone. So Yes, exactly. So how did you begin to study that? How, what is what is what is the way that you look at that in a lab? Well, the the research really started to take off when I uh, recruited uh, a postdoc to my lab, Billy Brady, who um, had just finished his PhD and had done this wonderful work measuring the expression of moral emotions on Twitter, and he had discovered a way to uh, to measure these expressions, and he showed with this work that. Um, moral emotions in tweets um, make those tweets more likely to get shared online. Or, or in, it's a correlational study. So tweets containing moral emotional language are more likely to get retweeted. And that was, that was one piece of this broader equation, right? That we express outrage that's more likely to get positive social feedback and that then creates this feedback loop, which over time could shape our behavior. So Billy started in the lab a couple of years ago, and we developed an entirely new set of methods for measuring moral outrage in tweets. And we've been using those tools to do a number of studies. You know, most of them are not published yet. I think you saw an early version of, of, of a, a preprint um, that is sort of going through the, the pipeline right now. But we've, we've been looking at a lot of questions with uh, this method. Well, when you bring up Twitter and, and, and moral outrage, part of what I wonder is where do you begin? Because Twitter runs on moral outrage and, and not just political moral outrage, right? Uh, people uh, upset because they're waiting in line too long, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It, 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 I always feel like, because that's also my response to these days. If I'm upset about like an interaction in public, mm-hmm. I'm going to be like, eh, you know, yeah. this happened. Although I almost tweeted, sorry, Alice, can you take this out? But I just have to share. I found a street, I found street parking on South of Congress today. So I almost <laughs> tweeted about that and would have been a success story. Anyway. Um, so where do you begin because Twitter runs on moral outrage. Yeah. So, you know, that was, that was our impression when we started to, oh, oh so, so pop quiz. Um, what, if, if you were to take a politically charged topic, what percentage of all tweets on that topic would you say contain outrage? Oh, what's your well, guess? <laughs> <laughs> Crucial question. Are we counting tweets from news organizations? Oh, um, yeah. All tweets. 70%? So it's way lower than that. Oh, okay, good. good. I can't give you I can't give you a blanket number, but actually one thing that was really interesting when we started this work was our initial strategy was to just take take hashtags 
on politically contentious topics um, like uh, I noticed you have Brent Kavanaugh as one of your examples. In the yeah, paper. yeah. Well, so that was actually st- stage two. Stage one, we were just looking at general words and topics and pulling the tweets on those topics and then um, mining those tweets for outrage expressions. And that actually, um, the the overall levels of outrage expression were, were way lower than we expected, Um which meant that we we had to change our, our strategy. And so we ended up moving towards a more episodic strategy. So just staying attuned to the news and being on the lookout for very specific episodes with very specific actors and keywords um, that we could you know, do a more targeted data harvesting. Um, and the Brett Kavanaugh hearings was, was one of those. Um, turns out in the period from 2017 to 2020, when we were doing this research, there were lots of, <laughs> I know this will come as a shock to you, but there was, there was a time point, you know, Twitter, um, Twitter has, uh, it's very friendly for researchers. Actually, it has an API where you can log in and, um, tweets from the past seven days, you can, um, you can download for free and beyond seven days into the past, you have to start paying for the data. And we didn't have a huge budget for this research. So, um, our, our, our research uh, technician, Killian McLaughlin was basically on outrage watch constantly. Um, <laughs> so that, um, you know, we, we had this Slack channel, we were sending messages and a new episode would pop up and like Killian quick, get these tweets. Um, and so we have we have a massive data set now. So you find people arguing. And I actually have a question, which is when you get into the specific episodic outrage, mm-hmm. do you get a higher percentage of moral outrage expressed yeah, in tweets? We yes. do. Yeah. So what so is that, that? It really varies by by data set. Um, the number that's sticking out in my head is is. 30% ish, but that's, that's a very, like they're wide air, wide margin of error. On that. You know, my first question about that is I think a lot of people would overestimate the number of, of tweets that are about, that have moral outrage to them. And mm-hmm. the fact that, the, that it's a, such a lower percentage than you might expect, is that sort of proof of your studies? Yep. <laughs> yep because, and this is, this leads to a broader point um, yeah. and, and maybe we can circle back to it um, whenever it makes sense. Like, our estimate of what other people think and feel is coming from our news feeds. And those news feeds are not at all representative of all the things people are saying online. They are a curated set of communications that is curated based on what Twitter or Facebook or whichever platform you're on's algorithm thinks is going to grab your attention and going to make you stay on the platform longer. And so this has really worrying implications for our ability to just understand and know what people both in our own group, but also on the other side believe. And the, like, it it boggles the mind to start thinking about the broader implications of that. Well, you know, one thing leaps to mind immediately, which is something that I usually wind up um, reminding myself, I'm not on a daily basis, but a lot, which is that, you know, Twitter is not real life. 
mm-hmm. um, that when I take breaks from social media, I'm a little surprised every time about how uh, rarely politics enters my life. Mm. You know, uh, I have friends who are civilians. <laughs> Although I will say that's another, that's an interesting thing about the Trump era is uh, I did start to notice um, that people who normally didn't talk to me about politics would start to talk to me about politics. Mm -hmm. But you know why? They they weren't interested in marginal tax rates. They wanted to know what I thought about the latest outrage. Mm -hmm. So what are these worrying implications though? So, so is the concern, I mean, I guess it must be that we start to believe that our social media is real life. I mean, because isn't it real life if we think it's real life? I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, where do you draw the line there? I mean, it's a really interesting question. And I mean, to some extent, you know, Twitter creates real life in that a lot, if not most journalists are on Twitter and deciding what to write about based on those interactions. So even members of the public who are not on Twitter are consuming news articles that are written by people who are immersed in that world. And you know, it comes it comes down to narrative, right? Like what what are the stories that are shaping our understanding of the increasingly complex world we live in and those stories are going to have heroes and they're going to have villains and the people who decide who the villains and the heroes are, are going to have a big impact on real life. So a question that arises is, well, who gets to create those stories? And, you know, this, this is an idea that, that is enriched by one of my favorite books from the past couple of years, Rebecca Solnit's whose story is this, right? And she highlights how, you know, power shapes who gets to tell these stories. And I mean, I think this is, this is, you know, one of, one of the upsides of social media is that it does expose us to a wider variety of stories and voices. Um, But the question also then becomes, you know, circling back to outrage, you know, who is allowed to express outrage, whose outrage gets amplified, whose outrage gets pushback and this is something we're looking at now. All right. Yeah. So I'm going to take a wild guess at who gets to express outrage online and who gets pushback. And I'm guessing white men are probably... Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> what do I win, yeah. Alex? <laughs> so so is, is it really just that it's it's just borne out by the data? It's not just our experience that, that, that shows this? Well, I mean, there's there's... There's existing social psychological research about backlash for expressing anger. And as you as you predict, women, people of color are more likely to get backlash for expressing anger. Um, there's not there's not a lot of data on that specific question in the social media context, but that's something that we are researching right now. Um, and there is, of course, unfortunately, ample data that people of color, women, sexual minorities are... Um, more likely to face hate speech and harassment online and be driven out of these spaces, which then raises the question of like, okay, well, if we have a digital public square and if politics is being shaped by discussions online, if you don't feel safe to participate in those conversations because you're worried you're going to get trolled or doxxed or whatever, then like those 
discourses are not going to be representative of everyone. A friend of mine, Anil Dash, has done interesting work on how this reward mechanism in social media is an artifact of the of how it was designed by white men. That if a woman or a person of color or a sexual minority was designing social media, you mm-hmm. might be thinking about harassment first. Mm-hmm. It would yeah. be a high priority yeah. and not just like, oh, what can we do now? All right, we invented our thing. Now what do we do about people who get harassed? Which is how it wound up developing. Yeah. Did you see, I, I, I'm, I'm really not sure if this is a, a parody or not, but there was a, there was a presentation that Intel engineers gave a pitch that wants to use AI to monitor and censor hate speech in online voice chats. And there was a dashboard where you could decide how much misogyny, racism, and xenophobia you want. And the, the options are, do you like, like, do you want to turn the N word on or off? Do you want to see none, some, most, or all racism and xenophobia? Like, I mean, so clearly designed by someone for whom the discussion of those topics does not engender fear. Uh, like, I'll just trauma. take a little bit. I'll have a moderate amount of you know? misogyny. I don't want the full amount, but I'll have a little misogyny today. Like, I want to go back to maybe what you've been learning about mm-hmm. that, because it is very, because I will tell you right now, that was very satisfying for me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what have you been learning in the lab about, about what happens when people do this? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the picture that is emerging, not just from our team, but also from other research teams is that behaviors that we express online, you know, our, our, our communications online, um, and that could be outrage or other kinds of expressions, um, do seem to follow these basic principles of reward learning that we see in humans in lab experiments and indeed in in many species besides humans. So, and this is a really basic feature of human nature. If you reward something, it becomes more likely to happen in the future. So if you apply that logic to outrage, then this does suggest that the, the you know, the reinforcement mechanism that that is built into these platforms is at the individual user level, increasing those expressions over time. Now, you know, you need to do lab experiments to really pinpoint the, the, the causal mechanism, which we have done. And, you know, it's, again, the results are, are, are trivial in a sense, you know, it's, it's not surprising that if you reinforce a behavior, it becomes more likely in the future. Right. But, you know, applied to applied to moral outrage, I think, it's, it just, you know, it, it, it raises some complicated questions. So on the one hand, you know, as we were saying earlier, I think we would all like for our moral discourse to be coming from our sort of best self place. And the way that the platforms are designed seems not to encourage that. And that's important because in real life, let's say, our moral outrage is sometimes maybe triggered in a habitual way, but also there are more chances for it to come from a, a intellectual place. 
Like I'm trying to figure out like if online is making us worse or if that's just who we are. It's really difficult to answer that question again, because, you know, how do you compare online and offline? They're different in so many ways, right? So, you know, just the way that you can express outrage online is very different from offline. It's way less risky online, right? Like going up to someone in real life who has said something harmful or is behaving in a you know, terrible way is really stressful. And for many people, very dangerous, right? So I mean, this is in a way, you know, lowering the threshold for the costs of expressing outrage, which again, you can't really evaluate as all good or all bad because, you know, I, I don't think that we necessarily would have had Me Too or Black Lives Matter without social media, right? So it does, it does make it easier for people who, you know, face risks to express those risks, those, those sentiments. I love that you keep reminding me that, that this moral outrage has a social function that a lot of people would endorse, you know, that, that for instance, it is dangerous for, say, someone of color to approach someone who's being, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> accosted or yeah. um, uh, even just someone, uh, someone using uh, language that's offensive, but put it online you create a posse, which maybe, ah, uh, you know, I guess there's some problems there. But then again, you get to do the exposure, you get to do the kind of um, shine the light that that sometimes creates change. So yeah, absolutely. It's nuanced. That's, that's, that's the main takeaway, right? What early, early in my work, you know, a, a common response is like, oh, well, so should we just like, take outrage out of the newsfeed or should we find a way to just turn it all down? Um, Cause what about polarization and what about, you know, civility and, you know, those, those arguments are tempting on their, on their surface, but, you know, outrage does serve a really important function. There is a worry that if you dial up the volume on everything, then it makes it harder to distinguish between issues that, you know, maybe we, collectively want to focus our attention on and do something about and, and ones that um, are, are maybe more trivial. And, and the, but I think an even, you know, more concerning um, bad consequence of outrage amplification online is that, you know, the algorithms can't tell whether they're amplifying uh, Black Lives Matter or, you know, economic inequality, outrage, or, you know. We're having your meal served cold. Um, or, or white supremacy, white supremacy or mm-hmm. misogyny. So Kate Mann, um, has done some really excellent work on the philosophy of misogyny. And in her book, Down Girl, she, she articulates how misogyny is, is a reaction to a perception that a, a woman has, has stepped out of her place. And so it is a kind of outrage it's a misguided kind of outrage, but you know, it's, it's, you know, this study hasn't been done. I would love to be able to do a study looking at whether like the, the brain and psychological signatures of a misogynistic response resembles outrage about injustice or you know, economic inequality or whatnot. But I, I think that, you know, there is overlap and indeed we are doing some studies right now looking at the overlap in, in content between expressions of hate speech 
and expressions of outrage online. And our early results do suggest that there is some overlap. We're not quite sure yet exactly how much, but um, it's, it's, it seems like it's, it's pointing in that direction. And in that study, are you looking at the algorithms uh, and reward? Or are you actually looking at the brain? Um, we're just looking at the content of tweets. Okay. Right. Yeah. Last ad break, I promise. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Ritual, the multivitamin company you know and trust. Maybe you think protein powders are just for elite athletes or bodybuilders, or maybe you're suspicious of all the complicated sounding ingredients. Well, we all need protein. So Ritual's team of scientists reimagined protein from how it's made to who it's for and why it's needed. The result is a delicious plant-based protein. It comes in premium formulations targeted at specific needs, all made with the same high standards approach and commitment to traceability the Ritual is known for. Introducing Essential Protein, here to shake things up. Now, I have to work really hard to get enough protein in my diet. I eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, which is great, but I need more protein. Making my own smoothies with essential protein means I have a steady source of protein, but it's not the same thing exactly every day. Now, the protein is vanilla flavored, but I can mix it up with anything I want from peanut butter or berries or maybe even coffee. You deserve to know what you're putting in your body and why. Ritual's visible supply chain means you know what's in their formulas, where the ingredients come from, and why they're included. Essential Protein has no added sugar or sugar alcohols. It's soy-free, gluten-free, and formulated with non-GMO ingredients. So why not shake up your Ritual? Ritual offers a money-back guarantee if you're not 100% in love. Plus, my listeners get 10% off during your first three months. Just visit ritual.com slash friends to add essential protein today. That's ritual.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon is the ultimate comfort food. It's nostalgic, it's easy to make, and it's good for you. Now, a lot of us raised by boomer parents weren't allowed to have sugary cereals. Magic Spoon means you can basically reparent yourself responsibly. It has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. You can build your own box or get a variety pack with the available flavors, cocoa, fruited, frosty, peanut butter, blueberry, and cinnamon. And again, mix them up. Have a blast. Uh, Again, peanut butter and cocoa is probably the classic, but I encourage you to try cinnamon and cocoa, huh? Go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab your delicious cereal and try it today. Be sure to use our promo code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT to save $5. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Allbirds. Maybe you're used to not wearing any shoes at all at this point, but now you're leaving the house on a regular basis? Allbirds lets you be as comfortable walking around as you are with your feet up. 
I keep a pair of their slip-ons by the door and they're basically my default shoe, whether it's taking out the trash, walking the dog, going to the store, or getting a coffee with a friend. Allbirds are made from sustainable, natural materials that feel light on your feet and are better for the planet. They're carbon neutral thanks to sustainable practices like using natural materials and purchasing carbon offsets. Allbirds has been dedicated to reducing environmental impact since the day they started. From operations to production, they treat the planet like a key stakeholder in the company. Keep things light and breezy with Allbirds Tree Runner. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. So I want to pull back a little bit, get away from talking specifically about Twitter and, and, and moral outrage, and talk about moral psychology, because it's a huge field. Or it's a huge idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has roots you know, a century or so ago. And I'm wondering, you know, our science is our, our hard science has gotten so much more sophisticated. I'm not sure if our soft science, you know, our, our <laughs> ideas have gotten more sophisticated, but I wonder how has the thinking changed um, over time in your field? Yeah, so great question. I think it, initial work on moral psychology really treated our moral sense as a dimension of reasoning. So you, know, you might have heard of Kohlberg's stages of moral development where, you know, children as they get older become sort of increasingly sophisticated in how they reason about right and wrong. And up until the sort of 90s, let's say, um, the, the question of how humans think about morality was, was really about thinking. It's a philosophical and, inquiry and a logical inquiry more than biological or... Exactly. And then um, then in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, you have folks like Jonathan Haidt, Josh Green, um, looking at the role of emotion in guiding our moral judgments. And, you know, brain imaging studies were, were becoming increasingly popular around the same time. So uh, a field emerged around looking at the brain mechanisms of moral judgment and decision-making. So that's when I started doing my PhD. I sort of grew up in that field. Uh, and, and a lot of my work was, was again, looking at the role of these basic reward systems and how they interact with brain areas that are involved in reasoning, um, like the prefrontal cortex. So we had some studies showing that when you have the opportunity to make money by delivering pain to another person. So it's sort of an ill-gotten gain. The the brain's reward system responds less to that money than if you earn the money without harming somebody else. And so that shows just how morality or moral values can get into our basic reward system. My question about sort of that overall journey that that the field has been taking is it it sounds a little bit like, so the early thinking about it gave us a lot more credit as humans. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) That it was really, it was reasoning, exactly, as Mm -hmm. you said. And as, and I don't, I I don't want to say we get less credit as humans for having it less come from reason. But again, from what I gather, it, it, we are only now understanding the level to which some of it's biological Mm -hmm. and some of it's in a, a, you know, moral, maybe 
doesn't have a place in the body or place in the brain. Like it's just, is it, is, am well, I? Well, well, I think it's, it's, it's the outside world getting in. It's how we, you know, represent these shared ideas and goals about what is right or wrong and how those ideas get into the mechanics of our value and decision system. But if you trace, you know, early days, oh, this is pure reason. It sort of swung the other way. You have Hyatt Green saying, oh, you know, emotions are so irrational. They take us away from, um, you know, making, you know, sensible moral decisions. And I think it's sort of swinging back towards the other direction now. So in a lot of the work uh, that's come out of my lab is, is looking at how our moral judgments really seem to be tuned to social relationships mm. and the, the demands of those relationships. So I like to think of our moral system as having a relational logic. And I don't know, I don't know why this, this hasn't been a, a big idea in the literature so far, but I, one, one theme I've noticed is that, you know, there's been a handful of philosophers whose ideas have really influenced moral psychology. And those philosophers have tended to be, you can guess. Oh, were they straight white men? They were. Oh, funny. I just... <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Um, so I've just gotten so much over the past several years of reading feminist philosophy, queer philosophy, um, ideas coming from people who have lived experiences that are just more diverse. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm planning now in sort of the next stage of my career to really start focusing even more on incorporating those kinds of ideas into moral psychology. So, you know, Kate Mann was one, um, Miranda Fricker has done this work on uh, epistemic injustice, which is about, you know, how our knowledge or lack of knowledge of certain concepts um, can prevent us from achieving social justice. You know, if before the concept of sexual harassment was a thing, there were you know, millions of people around the world experiencing that, but they didn't know it was a thing. And so mm -hmm. they couldn't articulate it and organize around it. And, you know, there are just lots of really fascinating descriptive questions to ask around these themes. What you made me think of with that is moral psychology would look a lot different if perhaps, you know, the philosophers structuring it weren't mostly assured that their ideas would be accepted, mm -hmm. that they would be right most of the time, mm -hmm. and that that they were the norm. Yeah. Right? Because those of us who aren't that norm in mm -hmm. one way or another, even in our, in our questions of morality, just in everyday life, yeah, are more complicated. We have to think about other factors besides just pure morality, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or it might wind up being, who knows what pure morality yeah. is, but we're thinking um, about self, uh, uh, about self-preservation, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're thinking about the reaction of the other person. Mm -hmm. um, I think Rebecca Solnit's written about this. Yep. Um, you know, because women, you know, 
not just women, but women in particular are always having to wonder, is this person going to commit violence against me? It's always, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a little ping in the back of your head. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's going to change how you think about moral psychology. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Thank you for letting me speechify. (laughs) So you're a woman studying people being mad online. I assume you're online. I am. You might occasionally I'd like to be. <laughs> you might occasionally get mad. And what is your experience uh, with, you know, outrage online? Perhaps directed at you, maybe not. I mean, I I think I've I've been pretty lucky to to avoid being the object of of outrage, and I think that's at least in part because I'm I'm pretty careful and intentional about what I post online. Um, I've I don't actually save my deleted tweets, but they're, they're so probably at least a 10 to one ratio because, you know, whenever I feel compelled to share something, um, especially to, you know, you know, express original opinions, you know, as someone who studies online outrage, you know, my mind automatically goes to how could this go terribly, terribly wrong. And so that has made me pretty careful and conservative. I mostly just try to amplify other people's voices because the other thing that's been on my mind, especially over the past year is that, you know, I'm a white, very privileged person and I have a lot to learn in these spaces. And so I'm just trying to be really intentional about amplifying other people and listening and reading a lot. Where do you think this field is going? Oh, good question. The field of moral psychology, study moral outrage. I'm curious, like the thing that you might feel either building towards, uh, you talked about how uh, the acknowledgement of, of humans as social animals is, is starting mm-hmm. to be more of an influence, but I'm, I'm just curious what you see down the road. Yeah. So what I'm most excited about is the marriage of the quantitative and the qualitative. And by that, I mean, you know, experimental psychology is this almost obsessive focus on quantitative data. You know, we do experiments, we, you know, reduce or summarize human behavior to numbers that we can do statistical models on. And there's huge value in that, but also so much is lost from exclusively focusing on quantitative data. And until very recently, you know, qualitative research could not be scalable um, because it, you know, it, it requires almost a, a literary approach and you, you, you couldn't study large numbers of, of, of humans um, with, these, with these methods. Um, but, you know, as natural language processing is getting more and more advanced, I'm really excited and optimistic about the possibility that we can get the best of both worlds and find ways of understanding the really rich details of people's lived experiences as it relates to morality and combine that with these large data sets of human behavior um, to, to just understand one another better. That's my hope. Molly, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Today on With Adorables Like These, Rutherford Falls star Jana Schmeeding tells us about her cuddly cat children, Wilma and Shazi. And this is a first for us. She sings an original song that she serenades those kitties with. 
You'll also hear from our producer, Alison Herrera. She'll chime in about the other Wilmas in her life. Can you uh, give us your adorables name and describe them? Yes. Okay. Well, I have two cats. I have a boy cat and a girl cat. And I know gender is a construct and they have proven that to be true as well uh, in terms of their lives and livelihoods. Uh, Wilma is my daughter. She's an Olympic athlete. She's very active and she is very shy around strangers and sometimes she hisses at men. So, you know, she's like my athletic queer daughter. And she is she what is what color is she? She's like a um I, I learned this term called Torby, which is a tortoise shell and a tabby. She has a very a lot of different colors. So yeah, I have Wilma and and then my boy is Shazi, which is the Lakota word for painted orange. And he is like wearing a one shoulder orange unitard (laughs) and he's a little bit fluffier than Wilma and he's very snuggly very loving he also loves he loves men who who visit like my my glam squad whenever I have like a makeup hair person come and they're two gay men that come and like do my thing for interviews Shazi is just like such a he like rolls around and loves to snuggle with them and they'll like lay down their towels for their instruments and Shazi will like perch there and just, he wants tons of pets. He wants all the attention and he needs about four hardcore cuddles a day, but yeah. So it sounds like you, you mentioned the story behind Shazi. Yeah. Shazi's name and Wilma. I've had a lot of Wilmas in my life. I think Wilma is kind of a, a, a name that a lot of Native people encounter. Hmm. A lot of Native Wilmas. I don't know. Am I right, Allison? Do you know a lot of, do you know any Wilmas? Well, my, um, my, that used to be a nickname for um, an aunt of mine. So oh. like, yeah, so definitely um, that. And then it was also my grandfather had a sister named Wilma. So yeah. <laughs> and how long have you had your companions and where did you get them? Okay, at the beginning of the pandemic, my friend uh, found these group of kittens and a mama cat in her backyard. And the mama cat kept moving them around. She was clearly like she was a little bit in distress. And so she made, my friend made like a box for her, the mama cat and, you know, brought out food for the mama cat. And it just seemed like the mama cat was not taken to it. And so she was like moving the kittens around. And then she was like, okay, I'm going to call someone to come in and do a DNR with the mama cat. And also we're going to adopt out these kittens. And I said, I want to please. Uh, So we did, we fostered out the kittens and a foster mom took the kittens, you know, when they were young, young and bottle fed them and raised them because I didn't know what I was doing. And then I took them, I got them when they were like a few months old and they were still very tiny. And so I've had them since the beginning of the pandemic. They're my best friends. (laughs) And of course, we here at the show believe all animals are emotional support animals. How have your animals specifically supported you? They are truly my children. Like I am, they have been with me through this very hard year and a half. They were with me 
when I didn't think that the show was happening. And then we, they were with me when the show happened. They were with me the entire production of Rutherford Falls. I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't able to bring them to set with me, but you know, they were with me through the pandemic and they're so snuggly. Do they have voices that you do for them? You know, it's, I know they do not have voices, but I have voices when I talk to them. Mm. Um, I don't make voices for them, but when I talk to them, I use a very annoying, stupid baby voice. And of course, and we need to hear this. So. Yeah. So like this morning, Shazi was coming up to me and he was like, he like, when I, whenever I'm on my computer, he walks over and he puts his butt right in my face. And so I was singing a song that was like, a scratchy butt. He needs a scratchy butt. He's got a scratch. Have a daily scratchy butt. He got an itch on his butt, and I got a scratch it. And here we go. We're gonna scratch the butt. Like just ridiculously silly. And last question: What cause would your adorable support? And if they would support different causes, you know, siblings sometimes have political differences, so that would be fine. I think Wilma's much more of a. Uh, you know, a socialist, if not communist, she's a little bit more like she has very strict political beliefs, uh, leftist beliefs. And so she's probably an active contributor to uh, the Red Nation, which is an indigenous leftist platform, media platform, and also, you know, activist network. Um, (laughs) So yeah, she's a she's an active Red Nation uh, member. And Shazi is definitely a body posy. He's all about like fat positivity, queer and trans justice king. All right. That's it for the questions. Thank you so much. And that is it for the show. Thanks to Jana and Molly for their time, as well as everyone else who put the show together. Allison Herrera, Jordan Waller, and Izzy Margulies. Louis Lino engineered the episode. And I want to take a second here to remind you that it's really helpful for you to rate and review us, even though we've been around for a while. We also have merch at the Crooked Media Store, which I literally never mention. So if you get one of our take care of yourself shirts, I guarantee no one else at that voter registration drive will be wearing one. Whereas other podcasts have t-shirts, you will almost definitely see at that kind of thing. Promoting your own stuff is hard. It's hard for me, at least. If it's hard for you, I invite you to promote something of yours today, to brag on yourself, or just give yourself a healthy pat on the back. That is, I promise you, a great way to take care of yourselves. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling And the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, 
relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.